the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hey, this is Scott Snyder. Hi, this is Denny O'Neill. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. Hi, my name is Dan DeDeal. This is Kevin Conroy. Hey, this is Francis Manipal. Hi, this is Jim Lee, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 141. I'm your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Ed. And this is Stella. We are bringing you the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the past three weeks, including July 13th through August 2nd. We have a total of seven books to cover on this episode, and I promise you this is the last episode that you'll have to wait three weeks for for some time. Uh, We will be back on schedule with episode 142. A lot of books to cover, specifically because there was five weeks in July as well, including a uh, special annual for Detective Comics. There was a one-issue special of Robin Rises, and then obviously the fifth week for Batman Eternal. So that is part of the reason why we are coming to you a week later than normal. With that being said, uh, we do have some news. We do also have some discussion of uh, San Diego Comic-Con, and let's just dive straight into the news. What's going down? So the very first thing we've got, on July 14th, the, the solicitations for October were released, and there wasn't a whole ton of uh, announcements or anything like that. Batman number 35 will begin a ne- the next big story arc from Snyder and Capullo, which is described as the biggest, deadliest, and most epic story yet mm. from the creative team and will be titled Batman Endgame. Uh, while this new event starts in the Batman title, Detective Comics will see the first two, first issue of a two-issue break for its still new creative team for a short story written by Ben Percy and John Paul Leon. Also, we'll see the continuation of the Robin Rises story in Batman and Robin, which will have Batman traveling to Apocalypse in search of Damien's body. October solicitations also include two issues of Justice League, the descriptions of which talk about not just the cooperation between Batman and Lex Luthor, but also a joining of Wayne Enterprises and LexCorp, without speculation as to to what end. Lastly, October brings the first annual for Harley Quinn, which coincidentally was among the top ten highest-selling books for the month of June. Uh, October will also see the continuation of the New 52 Future's End, um, Batman Eternal, as as the ongoing weekly titles. Also included in the October solicits are the first issues of the third DC Weekly title entitled Earth 2 World's End, mm-hmm. which is included because of the involvement of Batman of Earth 2, as well as its potential, tri- its potential ties to the Robin Rises storyline and whatever continuity events DC might have planned for the next year. Each weekly title will ship five issues in October. As we talked about before, October will see the beginning of two new Batman titles, Gotham Academy and Arkham Manor, both of which are solicited under the New 52 label. For those who are wondering whether these titles would be in continuity with the other New 52 titles and events, as well as the new creative teams and directions for both Batgirl and Catwoman. So you can take a look at the entire list of the solicits over on the website. There is, there's a, there's a big chunk. I mean, it's no doubt there. Um, as far as the graphic novels and trade solicits, not, not as much to report. As far as what we'll be seeing through the months of November and December, many of 
these are collected editions of various ongoing titles, but several are worth a more special note. These solicitations include a hardcover volume collecting the comic title based on the video game Batman Arkham Origins, as well as a collection of the first ten issues of the all-ages title Batman Adventures from 2003 to 2004, which was set in the universe of Batman the Animated Series. Also included... In these solicitations is the hardcover volume stories by Len Wein, which includes stories written in Batman Detective Comics and the Untold Legends of Batman. Uh, the collection of works from the 1970s will be available in December for $49.99. You can take a look at the entire list over on the website. Uh, lots of stuff, including Batgirl, Catwoman, Batman, Future Zen, Batman Superman, Justice League, Batman Robin, Batwoman, tons of all kinds of trades for a lot of the books. Uh, November and December is typically a big month for them to release a lot of the trades and solicits in preparation for holiday gift giving. All right, the next bit of news we've got on July 15th, there was an interview that was posted up talking with Becky Cloonan, Brendan Fletcher, and Carl Kershaw about Gotham Academy. You can check that out over on the website. On July 16th, Batman Endgame, uh, a little bit of news. Scott Snyder did, did an interview and uh, with Newsarama, and he talked about what's basically the plan for Batman Endgame. Um, he said specifically that uh, outside of the one-issue interlude, which will happen this month in August, um, there is the title will take place at the after the events of Batman Eternal. So this is going to directly correlate with what has occurred based off the events of Batman Eternal. Current plan for Endgame is to be a six-issue arc that will end in March before all three DC's current weekly titles, perhaps in preparation for some new continuity-wide event in April. Um, we have the interview focusing on the Endgame story on the website for you to check out. I have to say, I'm kind of interested in, in Batman Endgame. Um, I'm, I'm really, I guess the probably the most interesting thing about it is how they're actually going to tie it without spoiling the end of Eternal. That's kind of one of the things that I'm interested in since it's basically coming, this story is beginning six months after the events of Eternal, or I should say it's happening six months before the published end of Eternal, but it's supposed to be happening at the end of Eternal. So I'm kind of interested to know how they're going to craft the story so that it works without giving away the end of Eternal. Yeah, I think that it must have took a, a lot of work between Snyder and the, and the team of Eternal because it seems like if this goes off without a hitch and we don't get something weird like spoilers, you know, two months before stuff happens in Eternal, that they must have planned this out pretty far in advance to be able to have this kind of interwoven story. So it should be should be cool. Yeah, it definitely seems like they've done a lot of planning. In some cases, it almost feels like they're planned so far ahead with Eternal that. In some cases, it feels like they don't really know what to talk about when they're asked questions about Eternal because they don't necessarily know exactly what's been published and what hasn't been because they're that far in advanced. All right, next up, July 23rd, uh, we got the first look at Batman Earth 1 Volume 2, which is now supposed to be coming out in 2015. Um, among the images, we see that Killer Croc will be included in the graphic novel from Jeff Johns and Gary Frank. Um, he says that Croc is one of my favorites, and he is more human than monster in his version of this story. You can check out the pages uh, on display over at the website. Next up... At Comic-Con, um, 
Snyder had a spotlight panel. Now, this is about the only news from Comic-Con that we didn't already have. Um, Snyder specifically was asked the question whether or not Batman Endgame is, is Snyder's Endgame. Um, he stated that he has no intention of leaving Batman after the arc. Uh, he went on to say that Greg Capullo has attached the series to issue 50, though that wow. may have been an exaggeration. It, you know, it's un, un, we don't know for sure. Um, he would not want to leave his Bat brother behind if mm-hmm. that actually is the case. He also stated that issue two of Batman Endgame will focus on Harper Rowe. Uh, things coming up will be moving the characters of Julia Pennyworth and Harper Rowe forward. Uh, that's, oh, are you excited about that, Dustin? I think we've determined that at this point I'm, <laughs> I'm over the Harper Row <laughs> hatred. So, um, no, uh, the only other thing outside of this that I happened to see out of the, uh, out of Comic Con was there was a talk about, uh, Stephanie Brown. And somebody said, you know, is, is Batman Eternal where Stephanie Brown is going to be? And at the end of the story, is, is that the end of her story? And the specific answer from, I believe, Tinian and, uh, Snyder was, no, we have plans to involve Steph after the events of Eternal. And there could be some really big plans to focus on the character coming at the end of Eternal. Which, in my mind, I guess it just leads me to believe that maybe, just maybe, they're considering putting or giving Stephanie her own book at mm-hmm. this point, or a book, at least a book that's focusing on her and, you know, maybe some other characters as well. But it did seem like the way they phrased the answer that there could, in fact, be some sort of Stephanie Brown title, whether she's the main character or a supporting character after the events of Eternal, which is good to hear. Maybe she's going to enroll enroll in Gotham Academy. That is a possibility, I suppose. That'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm wondering if they would give her a solo title. Um, I I think it would sell just because so many people want to see her again that I think a lot of people would pick her up. But I feel like, just like with Harper, I think they'll probably insinuate her in some other title. And then if that is doing well, kind of like... (laughs) For some reason, Joker's daughter, you know, she kind of popped up in random things and now she's bigger. So I guess um, I, I kind of feel like that would happen. But that would that would be awesome if, if they use her again. I feel like it's going to be spoiler. So I don't think people should get their hopes up about anything. But it's just great to see Steph around again. You know, it'd be really cool, too, since we've all kind of been wondering why Tim doesn't have his own book. If they give Tim and Stephanie a book together somehow, I could live with that. Yeah, I could see that too. It'd have to play out somehow in the events of the two of them, you know, crossing paths, you know, for a definitive amount of time um, within the pages of Eternal. And at this point, we've only seen Harper Rowe be one of the few characters that's interacting with Tim. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows? Maybe we, we have a book that involves Spoiler, Bluebird, and Julia Pennyworth, whoever she ends up becoming. Who knows? I mean, it, it, you know, it's completely up in the air for now. Um, before we get into more San Diego, uh, just want to run down. There's a ton of DC All Access videos that have posted. They're over on the website. Uh, just to run through some of them, uh, we have one related to the current series Secret Origins, talking about uh, the origin, the, the I guess the new newer New Fifty Two versions origin stories of a number of characters. More specifically, more recently, Harley Quinn and Damian Wayne. Uh, there's another interview with uh, Peter Tomasi on Batman and Robin. There's one with Chip Kidd discussing his work on Detective Comics number 27. 
There is one talking with uh, Batman group editor Mark Doyle about the process behind creating Batman, the series. Um, there is one with Dan DiDio talking about the new series and creative teams coming October. A, a One with Grant Morrison speaking about the upcoming series that's coming out this month, Multiversity. And finally, the last one is a interview with a number of the Batgirl creators talking about their new direction that they're taking the book in. So you can check out all the videos on the website. We have them all linked for you to check out. But uh, finally, the last thing I want to talk about is San Diego. So Stella, Don, and Josh were all in San Diego. And there was a number of interviews that Stella and Don did while they were in San Diego. Um, we have released a special, uh, a crossover special, basically, on Batgirl Oracle and the Batman Universe interviews feed. So if you want to hear more details about these interviews, as well as interviews about Gotham, Lego Batman 3, Batman Assault on Arkham, be sure, and Batman 66, be sure to check out the uh, those specific episodes on both Backhold Oracle and the Batman Universe interviews. So, but specifically related to the comic creators, we talked with uh, the writer of, uh, co-writer of, of Detective Comics, Brian Buccioletto, writer of Batwoman, Mark and Draco, writer of Batman, Scott Snyder, uh, James Tinian, who's been working on Batman Eternal, writer of Batman and Robin, Peter Tomasi, and the writers of Grayson, Tim Seeley, and Tom King. So, um, Stella, I know you conducted a good chunk of the comic creator mm. interviews. Um, what, what was some of the stuff that you talked about with them that kind of got you excited about what's coming up? You know, it's kind of the things that they, they didn't want to say because you could tell that they were excited about the, the directions that, um, you know, the books were going and, and trying to pull out of, Especially Tomasi, kind of the the things you know, is Carrie Kelly coming back? He didn't want to say he he did make a face, which I noted in the audio. So he kind of let something slip, and, and just who this new Robin is, things like that. Uh, I really, especially like talking with Brian Bucciolato, just because I mean I'm really digging what Detective Comics is doing, and so just to get his enthusiasm for what they're doing and really bringing to the the forefront characters that we've kind of seen all of our lives but i mean detective bullock i feel like we've we've not seen him in this in this way and it was just great to talk to him about that and and annie and and how she's going to be dealing with everything uh batwoman she's got you know it's going to be rough so anyone who really likes the 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 kate and maggie relationship they're going to be hitting a kind of a rough patch but it gave me hope. I feel like, you know, he's dealt with female um, characters before, like Kate Spencer and Manhunter. So I, I trust him as a writer that he's going to do justice to this Kate, Kate Kane's character. Um, and it was just great to hear him say that, you know, these two belong together and they're probably the right fit for each other. And while they may go through some troubles, you know, there's going to be uh, some great things in store. Um, but overall, yeah, I, I tried as much as I could to get them to, to squeeze out some some uh, some spoilers, but they were pretty tight-lipped. But I, I was just really happy that, you know, they're excited. You know, none of the creators that I, I talked to were like down in the dumps. And even if they were tired, they were just excited about what they're doing. And, and I think that's when they're excited. I think, you know, we as comic readers are excited for it. So yeah, just stay tuned. I think October and, and all of this stuff in DC, it's, it seems like it's going to be a really big push this year. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I think the, the some of the coolest stuff that came out of those interviews was, 
really just the enthusiasm that they have. Yeah. I think that's honestly the, the biggest takeaway from a lot of the interviews was that the enthusiasts, the enthusiasm that they have for the characters that they're currently on is probably some of the best. Um, also, I forgot to mention uh, when I was running down the creators that we also, that still also one. talked with uh, the yeah. creative team behind Backroll in an impromptu interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what about Backroll? Was there anything outside of what we already knew that was kind of talked about as far as, you know, we know, you know, we know, her costumes change and we know that she's moving and we know her life mm-hmm. is basically thrown upside down. Do you, do you feel like anything else was kind of revealed, you know, during the time frame of Comic-Con about Batgirl? Yeah. And let me just, I, I forgot to talk about this in our little special, but it's actually pretty funny and just like serendipitous that I found this interview because, uh, I remember you had texted me, Dustin, and you said, go to Artist Alley. I hear that Cameron Stewart is there and I'm looking around. I'm looking at my little program guy and he's not there. And Babs Tar wasn't on the list either. And so I'm going online and I see on his, I th- it was either his website or a Twitter feed or something that there was going to be this Batgirl fan appreciation get together on Saturday for an hour and then, you know, to be announced the location. So then Dustin and I had our kind of our eyes peeled and we kept looking for updates. So even if Dustin had not texted me to look for Cameron Stewart and Artist Alley, I wouldn't have even found this. But they just had an hour um, for fans to, to get together. And it was Cameron Stewart, ben- Brendan Fletcher and Babstar. So those, that's the creative team. And they had two of the editors, editors, one of them being Mark Doyle. And then they were just talking about it. And so they talked to me on the record, off the record. I won't really share, you know, what they said off off the record, but number one, yeah, the enthusiasm, and I think we talked about that before, Dustin, just that they are super excited to to take on this new run and, and to really, I think, enliven Batgirl and, and pull her out of where she was before, kind of in this, this darkness. I think the one thing that they haven't really talked about in interviews, because they really focus on like her being young and hip, and, and I think they said it's Veronica Mars meet Sherlock, that kind of thing. They're doing so much research. And the weird thing is that they, they had known about Batgirl to Oracle. They hadn't necessarily listened to episodes, but in their research, you know, my podcast had come out. But they had been doing not only, you know, New 52 because they want to obviously pay service to what had come before with Gail Simone's run, but pre New 52 Babs. So I, I think that's like the number one thing to get out of this is the fact that they are dedicated to Barbara Gordon and who she is and who she was. And and to know that they're doing this kind of legwork gets me really excited and, and I'm I'm really putting one hundred percent of my faith trust in them that this is going to be an awesome era for Barbara Gordon fans and, and if they weren't enjoying that previous run that I think this is the time to jump on. All right, so then, like I said, all that stuff is happening come this October, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean you should give up on the books before October. Oh no, no. Um, outside of that, uh, we, you know, I will say at this point that uh, in September we have the Future's End um, specials that are coming out, so all the normal books aren't coming out. I haven't decided exactly how we're covering it. I know for a fact we're not going to be covering it the way we did last year. We're releasing an episode every single week. Um, but at this point, it's undetermined how we're going to cover it or which titles we will cover and which ones we won't. But just remember that September could be a little weird as far as what could end up happening. All right. So with that, we're going to get straight into our books, a number of stuff to cover. Uh, our very first book we're going to cover is Batman number 33. Riddle me this. Riddle me 
Bat's afraid of the big black bat. Batman number 33, writer Scott Snyder, artist Greg Capullo. This story opens up with Batman in the middle of the laser traps where we left him uh, last month. Uh, Riddler tells him that if he can answer 12 riddles correctly, then he will be able to free the city and stop him. Uh, we then we then cut back to see Gordon and Fox meeting. Uh, Lucius tells Gordon that communications are still down, and there's no way to either contact Batman or the mainland, which has sent the planes uh, with the bombs in to destroy Gotham. Uh, back with the Riddler, uh, Batman answers the first riddle correctly, and at this point he has 11 to go and 14 minutes left. Uh, he quickly answers the next one correct as well. Uh, while the riddles are going on, we see that, that Gordon is in the background looking for a way to signal the approaching fighter jets that uh, that they need to abort their mission and not not bomb the what they think is the Riddler's position. Um, Batman gets the next riddle wrong, uh, but as the Riddler orders his deaths, uh, the drones that he is kind of robot drones he's using uh, refuse to comply with his orders, uh, and we see that Gordon has found a bat signal to signal the aircraft. And that Fox is using the giant penny to reinstate the uh, the blocking signal. The Riddler no longer has has control. Uh, Batman punched the Riddler, and we see the planes begin to circle the city and stand by for new orders. Uh, the Riddler then reveals a lightning bolt uh, type of question mark on his chest, uh, and it's like a big button uh, looking thing. It's tied to the servers. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> it's a big lightning bolt button on his chest. Um, it is tied to the servers, and the only way to restart the city and turn back on the power and the communications would be to take the um, take the lightning bolt off and put it on a new host uh, and restart the new host with about a thousand volts of electricity, uh, and then he would be able to control the uh, the communications and the power. Um, Batman knocks the Riddler out and then takes the uh, the lightning bolt uh, control button off and puts it on his own chest. Uh, Batman begins to wire himself up, uh, and we see that the order is given to go ahead and come back through and bomb the city. Uh, Batman plugs himself in and begins uh, to shock himself and attempt to uh, bring the city and the communications back to life. Uh, we see, see a few more small panels of of a younger Bruce in, in bed with wires connected to him, which is something that we've seen a, a few panels of kind of throughout the story here. Um, Batman wakes up uh, with Alfred over him, and it's worked. The city's come back to life. The power's on. The communications are back up. Lucius has got to tell the planes, you know, don't bomb the city. We're, we're fine. And Alfred tells him that although he may not always agree with what he does, he'll always be there for him. One month later, uh, Bruce Wayne is throwing a street party uh, for the citizens of Gotham. He welcomes the new police commissioner, which is Jim Gordon. Uh, we then see that Nigma is locked up in Arkham. Uh, Gordon mentions to Bruce that someone has replaced his coat with an identical one. Uh, and the coat he's referring to is the coat that Jim got back from the uh, around the dogfighting episode, which was about a year ago. Uh, oh. Bruce says he has no idea. Who, who would have done that? Um, Bruce then tries to tempt slash push Bruce into a union with Julie Madison, an mm -hmm. old flame of his. Uh, Bruce tells Alfred the story of the time that he went to receive extreme shock therapy, which was the flashbacks we saw throughout this this, this issue, uh, because he wanted to be be fixed, but then he he wanted to be totally rebooted himself. Um, but then he stopped at the last minute. He, did, he didn't go through with it because he he wanted to find some way to fight through it. Um, we didn't see Alfred kind of play out a fantasy in his head of, of Bruce reuniting with Julie Madison where they fall in love and raise a family. But in the end, you know, he has to tell Julie that Bruce is spoken for and we see uh, Batman uh, flying through the city. The end. I guess the first question I have is uh, 
the entire year long, year plus long storyline of Zero Year is over. Mm-hmm. And what do you guys feel with this conclusion of the story and about the, the whole story as a whole now that it's over with? And we can kind of look back on it as a whole and complete story. My thoughts on this is I think that it was a, probably a little bit longer than it needed to be. I think that the ending was satisfying to the point where, you know, we did get a conclusion. We do see a number of things set up to the point where we know how things operate. You know, James Gordon is now commissioner. Bruce Wayne is, you know, starting his philanthropic ways with, you know, throwing the street fair to rise the the spirits of of the citizens. You see a lot of different things setting up. Um, I think that the, I mean, overall, it was a, I mean, when you think about it, it was a very long story that essentially was three different parts. Yes, the Riddler was one of the overarching themes in it, um, and the the idea of Batman becoming or Bruce becoming Batman for what we would know as Batman, that really was like an overarching theme that we saw throughout the entire story. Um, but, you know, there's some parts of it, the story that I think were really good, and there's other parts where I think they were just, they were okay. And in some ways, I feel like the okay stuff could have probably been, you know, trimmed down so that it probably wasn't as long as it was. But I think overall, I mean, it wasn't a bad story by any means, but I honestly would have to just say that the arc as a whole would probably just go down as like an average arc for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly agree that it was <laughs> it was pretty long. And it's funny because, you know, when Ed was refreshing our memories on like when the coat, you know, when he lost that coat and, and different sections like that, I mean, I, I really couldn't remember when that happened. I trusted that it did happen, but it's hard when you have a story that is so long. I mean, I, I just have trouble remembering back from, you know, to the beginning. And it, it's difficult to have this as a, a one-month serial because I, I feel like now would be the time to maybe these are the stories that are best read all together. And let's read that whole story and then, you know, recap it and, and talk about It's just hard sometimes, um, I think, with, with Snyder's storytelling because it is so involved and in-depth to, to, to span this amount of time. I feel a little cheated just because, I mean, we start off in this, like, um, I am legend sort of wasteland in Gotham City and I was and remember the the flood I think was going on at that point too and I was kind of interested perhaps more so than Riddler but to see how does that city go from this wasteland to the Gotham City that we know I guess in our current times and to see in this issue the beginning we've got this wasteland and then literally one month later you already start to see a cleaned up Gotham I'm not too sure about that that seems I mean Bruce Wayne is is a pretty good guy when it comes to getting the job done but do you think he'd really be able to to clean up that much well, especially so early in his, you know, yeah. you know nobody really knows who he who is. is. He's yeah. coming. He's. I mean, they know who he is, but they don't know. Like, he's not established himself as this, you know, Gotham savior who's going to change everything. Mm-hmm. I did think that was also kind of strange how it just happened so suddenly. Where right here it is, everything's clean. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it was. It, it was probably just a few city blocks where the fair was going on. 
it's yeah. probably likely. Yeah. It's probably yeah, but you can only assume though, thinking that well, if it's happening here, then what's the rest of the world looking like? Uh, you know, this kind of reminds me of Skyfall in the fact that if you recall, Skyfall really sets up to where I mean, technically, Doctor No would happen because you've got your money penny and you have kind of the status quo all set up, and this is what you know this book is doing right now because you're setting up um, everyone's basic status quo of who Bruce Wayne is, his relationship with Alfred, Batman's relationship with Jim Gordon, things like that. Um, one question I really actually wanted to, had I the interview with Scott Snyder, a question that I would have really liked to ask him is, are we going to get a transition story between Zero Year and our present timeline? Because I, I kind of think, I think that would be very interesting to see how is the city changing? How does Batman change? Because now we just have the very beginning and the current, but there's like this gap in the center. But overall, you know, long story, there are some great moments, but you know, the city, I, I don't know, how is it changing so quickly? I do think that, like Skyfall, this could have used an Adele song for like the. Oh yeah! <laughs> I mean, it's, it would fit in with that kind of. You Julie know, Madison should have just stood up and started singing. Just panning through the wasteland type deal. Um, no, uh, like, and I understand that it is, and that's the thing is, like, I was wondering too is how much of this little stuff at the end, like like the coat thing with Gordon, had the readers completely yeah. forgot about. Mm-hmm. You know, because the whole thing note was needed for once. Well, I think so because I mean the co- the only reason I truly remembered it clearly was I had actually just got the trade for the first collection of the oh. first six issues, so I had read it like a, like last week and I'd read the trade of the first six issues, so I remembered that Gordon had got the coat when he was with you know when the, there was the bribery going on and and remember Batman thought he he had taken the coat as a bribe but he you know this whole thing so but I wonder if people reading it a year later. How many people have totally forgot about it and was like, why is he talking about a coat? What's going on here? You know, um, I do like the story overall. Um, and I do think that right now with what's going on with Snyder here with the new creative team and detective, I, I think that we're in a real bright spot with Batman comics for the first time in maybe a while where all the books, Tomasi with Batman and Robin, everything seems to be going in a pretty good direction right now, in my opinion. Uh, and I guess the, the only thing I, I really wanted to ask and it's not specific to this story, but now that we've been into New 52 for a while and we just finished another big story, and you know, we've had Court of Owls, Death of the Family, Tomasi's Five Stages of Grief. I mean, we've had these the Two-Face story. Where do you put Zero Year in the New 52 in the story arc? Is it at the top, at the bottom, in the middle? Um, where, where do you guys put it kind of in the New 52? I mean, I don't want to say all Batman stories because then you start getting all the classic stories, but where do you put this in the New 52? You're ranking it you mean in terms of h- how much we like it? Yes, or, kind of against other okay. uh, other story arcs in the new 52. Do you gotcha. do you like this one more or less than things like Death of the Family and Tomasi's Five Stages of Grief or mm. or is it just kind of in the middle? Well, see, the thing with that is, okay, when you look at Tomasi's story, he he has basically said that the entire story that he's been telling since the beginning is one really really long story. Um, so it's hard to like decipher or just to, you know, say the five griefs of, uh, or the five stages of grief story or, you know, Batman and where he was teamed up with a bunch of different people. And then those short stories that occurred during the course of those It's very difficult to, you know, specifically link anything with, you know, if you just take Batman and Robin as a whole, because honestly, if you take five stages of grief and you stick that in there as one of the storylines, I think that one would be probably towards the bottom in my opinion but um just if i was just going to rank it out of 
the major stories that Snyder has done, Death of the Family, Court of Owls, and Zero Year. Honestly, I'd say Court of Owls was, I think, better. And it's odd because it was almost, it was almost as long, um, and took place over just as much, almost just as much time. But I think Court of Owls, like, I think the, the ending, like, with the reveal of who Lincoln March was and stuff, like, even if it's completely, okay, I want more answers, I think that that ending was a little bit, you know, I didn't see the ending coming. With this, we obviously knew Batman was going to, you know, he was going to defeat the Riddler. Otherwise, how could we actually get to present day? It just it wouldn't work. So I think that I put Court of Owls above this, but I would put this above Death of the Family. Um, and the reason being is Death of the Family, I, 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 you know, looking back on it outside of the fact that it ended in some ways abruptly and then left this, like, weird ripple effect that nobody really explained that well. I didn't like that. Um, I didn't really enjoy the crossovers that were involved in it. Um, a lot of them came across as just forced. So, and I know that when you think of it, you're only supposed to be looking at Scott Snyder's stuff of the family, not the other stuff. But when you look at the entire story as a whole, that's those crossover issues that are happening. They, they affect the, the story, not necessarily in a direct way, but it is adding to the story. So I put Death of the Family at the bottom, and I know a lot of people probably wouldn't agree with me, but that's where I would put that. Um, you know, the stuff that's happened in Detective Comics, the Wrath story I think was good. Honestly, I'd probably, I'd probably put that eh, probably about the same level as Zero Year. Uh, Gothitopia below mm. uh, Zero Year. But I mean, like the thing is, there the biggest reason of why I put it where I do is because it just felt really long. The fact that it was one large story that was just broken into three arcs, again, just comes across as why is it needing to be three separate stories that add into that make one giant story that just doesn't. That's well, one, it seems odd. Two, it just makes it seem like it's being written specifically for the trade because. How convenient is it that it's broke, you know, this one year long story is being broken into three convenient sized, you know, possible trade paperbacks. I know it necess- I know it wasn't written like that, but it just seems weird that it was broken up like that. Um, so the length, the other part of it is uh, Court of Owls from the beginning to the end always felt like there was something going on, something important leading up to it. You know, the story in Zero Year with Dr. Death and the weather balloons and the whole Helfrin thing and him dealing with Lucius Fox, none of that really felt like it added anything, like added anything to the story. Yeah, it set up the weather balloons. Yeah, it set up the relationship with Batman and Lucius Fox. But outside of that, it really didn't feel like anything came from that story. So, I mean, the big thing is, Court of Owls didn't, I didn't really get that feeling as much as I did with Zero Year. So, um, yeah, that's where I'd put it. Yeah, it's hard. I guess if we just focus on Batman to try to rank it. I also didn't really like Death of the Family. Um, I mean, <laughs> I don't really like the Joker right now given the fact that I've just read The Killing Joke. Uh, but, you know, I, I wasn't really digging what what they were doing with him. And frankly, to look at that mask all the day, you know, 
every every week as we had to review it and watching it deteriorate was <laughs> I didn't really like it. Uh, and and then the the way that just just like the mask or the face, the Bat Family disintegrated. You know, I had a problem with that because I feel like it wasn't very well explained. Uh, I feel like between the three big things that Snyder has done, I would put Zero Year in the middle between Death of the Family at the bottom and um, the the Talon storyline at the top. Um, I, I think that it, it's hard to... I don't know. There are some... Sometimes I think some of the, the shorter stories were one of the, the, you know, are the better stories because in, I guess, it, I think it was The Dark Knight because just as I was really starting to enjoy The Dark Knight, then they canceled it. But the stuff they were doing with Ivy and Clayface, I thought, wow, this is actually, I was really enjoying that. Um, I frankly think that Detective Comics is the best that it's been. Uh, I'm really enjoying what they're doing and, and I love seeing Harvey Bullock in all his grandeur as he is now. Uh, Gothtopia, I didn't have as much a problem with it. Um, I think it slowed down and, and didn't, did not pack a big of, of a punch as it could have. But when it started out, I thought it was a really unique idea and, and I liked how they were doing it. And some of the tie-ins were, they were good and some were strange because why would you call Batgirl Bluebell? <laughs> um, yeah, I know, right? But, uh, yeah, so I would say that, that this, um, would be in the middle. And, you know, Ed, you had said, after, cause you'll probably answer this question as well, but you said that you bought the trade. And when I was talking about this, I said that maybe it'd be best to read it all together. How was it? Did you enjoy reading it all together in one sitting, if that's what you did, uh, compared to us doing it monthly? Did it work out better? It's way. Well, I read it monthly as it went along, but it's way right. better if you if you read it from you, start to yeah. finish. It's way better. I mean, okay. one is like there's all kinds of little stupid things. Like I forgot about the scenes with Bruce in the classroom. Um, I mean, I'm like there's all kinds of little stuff that if you read it all at once. Like mm-hmm. I read the trade and then I read the individual issues up to the end. So I read the whole story together before I read the end, which is probably why my questions are more about the whole story. Um, but if you read it as one story, it's really, really, it really, seriously, it's really, really good if you read it as one story. And that's, uh, but, but I think that's one of the problems is, you know, it's a monthly book that's coming out, but, but I mean, even if it's not written for the trade, it's better reading for the trade. And I think that's, that, that's a problem when you're reading them month to month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, in fact, since I like the story so much, I think an alternative way they could have published this was, Instead of doing twelve months, had done six six double sized issues. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to have a story that's this big, I don't think anyone would have cared if you threw an extra buck on top of it a month and we got it done in six months as opposed to twelve. Um, that's true. You know, I mean, I, I realize that there's probably some logistical issues with Capullo's art, but I think that that yeah. would have been a far more effective way to read this story. Is that way it, for each? You know, for six issues, each arc is only two issues, two double sized mm-hmm. issues. I think that would have really benefited this art greatly or um, twice a month if they had like still kept the the way that they divided it but at least like double the publication time yeah because i think it does a disservice to the story because you forget it like the whole right. thing with with the trench coat that he gives him at the end is supposed to be the big seminal moment mm-hmm. where batman is accepting jim gordon as his partner mm-hmm. because he had the coat that he thought that was the reason he thought he was dirty at first because he was wearing an expensive coat right yep you know, so I mean, like, but it's lost by the time you get there. You forgot about, you know. I mean, so I think you forget. And, and again, I think it is way better in trade. Uh, but if you look at my enjoyment of the story arcs, I know that 
this is going to cause some ruffle some feathers. My favorite story arc is Death of the Family. Um, Interesting. I don't like the crossovers, but I, and I know, Dustin, your point is well taken. It's tough to eliminate the crossovers, right? But when I go back and reread them, because I, tra- I collect a lot of stuff in, in, hard, in hardback, is Death of the Family, if you take the, the, the crossovers out of and just read the story, is my favorite story. Uh, but I would probably put – I love Court of Owls, but I'd put this one probably next because I think I have had the fortunate ability to go back and read it as one story. And I think if you ever have an afternoon out there, anybody listening or my, my, my two co-hosts, where you got a couple hours to kill, if you read the story from issue one to the last issue, it is a lot better than you think it is. Well, let me ask you this. Where would you put Black Mirror on that list? Mm. I'd probably put Black Mirror – Tied with Death Family, maybe. So I love Black Mirror. Really? Yeah. I would put it above. I would put that above at the very top. Yeah, so would I. Yeah, I mean, I'd put it right at the top. I mean, it's to that Black Mirror and Death the Family, like, if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably say Black Mirror, but to me, both of those stories are my two, probably my two favorites that he's, you know, in recent continuity. But see, I, I wonder if the reason why you enjoyed Death of the Family more than we did was because you're, you're reading it from that perspective of you read it all together. Mm hmm. Do you think that's the case? Because the thing is, like, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I don't read trades when they come out. You know, when the trades come out, I, you know, I don't collect trades. I collect single issues. I read the issues month, to, you know, month to month. So when when trades come out, I'm sure it does help some of the stories, um, especially Snyder, since they're so long. But I feel like if you're not reading the trade, would you rate it as, uh, you know, would you put it up there as the same way? Probably not, uh, because my feelings on the stories change quite a bit, and that's why I wanted to do it before we recorded today, read kind of zero year in quote-unquote trade format, you know? Um, Snyder's stories are made to be, and, and I think your point is really good, Dustin, his stories are made to be, be read from issue, as a novel. I remember Snyder's not a comic book writer, he's a novelist, you know? He's used to you reading a whole story, and I think he... His struggles are when they when his story has to be broken up. All of his stories are way better in trade, including Black Mirror. I mean, if, if you read Black Mirror altogether, it reads like like not like a comic book. It re- reads like a, a thriller novel, you know. Um, so yeah, I think that anybody who is questioning and, and if and, and if you do get to go back and read Death in the Family, don't read the crossovers. Just ignore them. They they don't add anything to the story whatsoever, uh, except you know why Batgirl and Robin are off the table, but. Go back and reread his stuff in trade, and I think you will find it. You you will think of it much much higher. So Batman number thirty three. I'm going to give three and a half out of five batterings. Uh, four out of five. I'm going to give it three and a half and and out of five. And can I just say that I was completely thrown for a loop when they had that whole dream sequence at the end, where they show like <laughs> how it could have been. Because just reading it straight through, you're like, what just happened? But then you you flash back and realize it was a dream. But the Julie Madison thing was pretty intense. And over on the website, Corbin Poole gave it five out of five batterings. So that's going to give Batman number thirty three a total of. Four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Robin Rises Omega, number one. Robin Rises, Red Dawn Omega. 
Writer Peter J. Tomasi, penciler Andy Kubert, inker Jonathan Glapion, and colorist Brad Anderson. After a history lesson that highlights how Batman and Talia met, how Damien came to be, Damien meeting and working alongside his father, death of the family, of course, Damien's death and Batman's downward spiral and interactions with other members of the Bat family as he went through the five stages of grief. Uh, We finally see where Bruce is after accepting what has happened. Uh, But his comfort was taken away when Ra's al Ghul returned to steal both Damien and Talia's corpses from the plot outside Wayne Manor. This led Bruce to follow him to Nanda Parbet, where now he, Frankenstein, and Ra's al Ghul himself are facing glorious Godfrey, who has arrived from Apocalypse to claim a chaos shard that he believes Batman holds in his possession. Batman denies having heard or seen of such a thing, but aside from that, uh, oh, but then Raish actually admits to him that he has secreted it within Damien's sarcophagus, so there you go. Godfrey notes that he is well aware that the shard is within one of the sarcophagi, and he will collect it by force. Though they are mortal enemies, Raish and Batman ally with one another to defend the corpses. This leads to a battle between the League of Assassins and the Parademons of Apocalypse. In the melee, the sarcophagi are lifted into the air by flying parademons, and Batman and Raish leap after them to tear the coffins from their talons. Upon finally getting the creature to drop his son, the sarcophagus falls open and Bruce retrieves the Chaos Shard. After touching it, his mind fills with memories of his first encounter long ago with the heroes of, potentially, Earth 2 and the fight with someone named Kayo. I remember this character, actually, who shattered the Chaos Crystal in the first place. He has a further inkling that somehow Damien will save everyone. Godfrey catches up at last and blasts Batman away from the crystal. Sensing residual energy from the shard within the sarcophagus, he decides that he will bring both the shard and the coffin back to Apocalypse, which, of course, does not please Batman. Before returning, Godfrey prepares to fulfill his promise to kill Batman and places his gun to the man's head. Suddenly, his hand and the gun are encased in ice, courtesy of Captain Cold, say what, and the rest of the Justice League. Against Batman's protest, the League begins battling the Parademons and Justifiers. Godfrey sees that it would be to his advantage to make an escape and activates his mother box to escape with the sarcophagus. The League eagerly rushes, er, ushers him away through a boom tube, failing to realize that Batman has lost what he came to retrieve, which I have to say that Shazam was pretty annoying in this issue. Awkwardly, Wonder Woman apologizes for rushing in without fully assessing the situation and costing Batman his son. Talia and Raish, meanwhile, have disappeared because they fell off a cliff. Possibly dead, but likely alive. Batman explains that what he saw in the Chaos Shard suggested him that there is a way to bring Damien back to life, but he needs to get to Apocalypse to do it. Whether he has the rest of the League's support or not, he intends to go there and get his son back alive and to be continued in the next book that we're going to do to be honest i feel like there's more to talk about in batman and robin 33 so i I think i really only have maybe one question maybe two i don't know but we have this scene and it's very short it's basically one panel right where batman has memories of his younger self and he's believing that damien could save them all and i i'm what do you make of this? Do you think that this is our Damien or because this vision is potentially of another Earth, do you think if we get Damien back, going to be a Damien of another Earth? Well, I guess that's, that is one of the questions. Um, 
You know, the thing is, I'm kind of at a loss because I'm trying to understand why Godfrey would just take the sarcophagus of Damien. Yes, it was explained, oh, he feels residual energy, but what does it really need to happen? I mean, like, why would he need to bring that back? He has the crystal. That's all that really matters. That's what he was sent to get. It's He wasn't sent to get something that had residual energy. If it was, If the crystal was stuck in a giant piece of ice and they broke the ice, would they scoop up the ice and bring that back? It doesn't make any sense to me. That being said, you know, is it going to be, are we going to see Damien from another Earth? I mean, it's entirely possible. Um, I almost feel like if that, if something like that did happen and we got a new Damien from a new Earth and we had to see Batman, like, interact again from the very first, you know, interact with, with this character for the first time, I almost feel like that would be a cop-out because... Rather than bringing the character back from the dead in some way from the events of whatever's going to transcribe on in in Apocalypse, instead we get this other character where we start at scratch. It's almost like rebooting Batman and Robin. So I hope that's not the case. Um, I honestly feel like if anything would happen, it would be Damien in the sarcophagus coming back to life only because he is in fact being brought to Apocalypse for some weird reason. I also echo Dustin's sentiment that I suppose it's absolutely possible they would do that. I, again, I just hope they don't. I would, yeah, exact same thing. Retread, reboot, don't need it. Um, so unfortunately, he said exactly what I was going to say. So I have nothing to say. <laughs> uh, as for the the energy thing, I feel like um, it's made more clear as to why. Well, Dark Side in in thirty three, Dark Side is upset. Also, like, why did you bring this? But Dark Side also does need all of the amount of energy that he can get for his chaos cannon. So I don't know if maybe Godfrey was thinking like, I need, I need all the stuff that I can get. So I'm going to bring this dead body. I I don't know. Um, oh, as for the other, you know, I just, maybe I'm being a negative Nancy, but I just feel like we're not going to get our Damien back. And, um, maybe Damien will come back, but I just feel like he's not going to be, um, either it's going to be a completely different character for Robin or it's, it's going to be a very different Damien. So I don't know, but that would be weird for the other, but I just wonder why did he have this flash of another earth and how does that relate? Um, Raish, you know, falls to his doom, but really he doesn't. Do you think, is this the last time we see him? Does he have any part to play in, in what's to come or is this, we're just taking a break from Raish and Talia and we'll pick up sometime in the future? I think that they probably will pop up back at some other point. I feel like uh, now that Batman just, you know, assumes that they're gone, I, I, I don't understand the, you know, brushing aside of that either. You know, the fact that he says, oh, Frankenstein's dead and Roz and Talia are gone. And he just basically shrugs it off and is like, you know, stuck on this goal of I got to go get Damien, which, okay, that makes sense. But you would think when you have the entire league there, you would say we need to find Roz El Ghul and Talia because that would probably be important instead of just leaving them sitting in some, you know, the bottom of some cliff. Um, so that's weird. I do feel like they will come back, and I almost feel like now that Batman's attention is drawn away from Roz, he'll probably end up resurrecting Talia. I feel like that's going to happen anyway. Um, 
because even if Damien doesn't come back, I feel like Talia will. Yeah, I think that I think that Talia will probably. I, I, now I don't know if we're going to see a whole lot more involvement from Raz, Raish, or uh, or Talia in in this arc. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that they'll probably be down the line. Uh, I mean, I think we're kind of moving on the off to apocalypse type deal. So I don't think we'll see any more in this arc. I do think we'll see him back at some point, but I hope that it's and especially in the case of Talia, who I am. 1,000% sure at some point we'll get right back to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope it is they kick that can down the road for for a couple of years. I don't see any need to have her back anytime soon. All right, so Robin Rises Omega number one. I'm going to give a total of four out of five. Three and a half out of five. I'm going to give it a three out of five. And over on the website, Corbin Poole gave it four, so that's going to give Robin Rises Omega a total of three and a half out of five betterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman and Robin, number 33. You can't let your emotions get the best of you. Batman and Robin, number 33, Cold Justice. Writer, Peter J. Tomasi. Penciler, Patrick Gleason. Inker, Mick Gray. Colorist, John Calise. Having just watched his son's sarcophagus carried away to apocalypse via a boom tube, Batman demands to know why he can't follow the parademians who took it sternly aquaman which is weird aquaman explains that the justice league can't go off planet on personal missions leaving the earth vulnerable cyborg reminds him that they know so little about apocalypse that it would be foolish to go there so soon batman responds by using Vic's suit to short out the league's transportation devices and go back to the justice league satellite by himself frustrated the league attempts to find a way to follow him and frankenstein decides he wants no more to do with any of this as he walks off carrying one of his own limbs on the satellite batman accesses a vault which contains a specialized specialized bat suit called the hell bat but when he attempts to have the suit released to him the computer denies him access the league has already found their way back and batman sees that they intend to stand in his way in response to their recrimination he reminds them that they all play God every day, and there's no justification for treating the idea of bringing his son back to life like a crime against nature. Aquaman, again, reminds <sighs> that catching Darkseid's attention at this time is dangerous. They're not ready. Batman responds that if Darkseid has taken his son, they already have his attention. He reminds them that his Hellbat suit is designed to face threats like Darkseid, and Wonder Woman interjects that the suit's creation was a team effort. Superman forged it in the sun, and then each member of the League contributed to its creation using their own unique abilities. It was designed to keep Batman safe, the only one without powers. Batman realizes that this is an intervention, yes, and grabs Captain Cold's cold gun to attack Cyborg, prompting the others to hold him back. As he struggles with them, Batman dares them to look at what they are doing. Finally, he stops fighting back and expresses his resignation. On Apocalypse, Glorious Godfrey presents the retrieved Chaos Shard to Calabac, Darkseid Sun, uh, who is disinterested. Oh, so I was wrong. It wasn't Darkseid, but Calabac, who is disinterested with the sarcophagus that he also brought. But Godfrey explains that it had emitted a similar energy signature to the shards, and he thought it prudent to bring it. Calabac decides that if it bears the same energy signature, it too can be used to fuel the Chaos Cannon. See, there you go. And then, standing among the fireflies at Damien's open grave. Do you remember this, people? Even though this was a couple years ago, I at least remember this particular scene when it was Damien with the fireflies. Bruce loses his composure and patience and smashes the gravestones, or just the gravestone, with his spade. 
He feels Superman watching him, and his friend apologizes for the way things got so out of control. Bruce admits that his position is selfish and that he understands the League's reasoning. It was unlikely he'd survive going it alone. Clark expresses his understanding and offers his help in the unlikely event that Bruce asks for it. When Superman leaves, Bruce calls his family together, with little quotes, and meets them in the Batcave to prepare for their mission. I'm talking, I mean, Jason Todd, we got some Tim Drake, we got Barbara Gordon. Let's forget the fact that they're all dispersed around the world in uh, Eternal. Next up, Robin Rises. Okay, I got a couple questions here. Here's an easy question. What do you think the Chaos Cannon is? I'm guessing, this is going to sound weird, I, I'm guessing it can destroy planets. It's basically a Death Star. I, 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 or, it's, or it unleashes chaos, so like similar to, I guess, like some sort of device that can transport chaos, which I guess maybe it's just like a large boom tube or something. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, I guess trans, mass transport for parademons, maybe. I just figured it was one of these apocalyptic gadgets that was no good for anybody, so we really don't want to find out what it's going to do. Just make sure it doesn't happen. Uh, I, yeah. I, you know, we always hear the anti-matter, right, equation. And so it's interesting, I guess, to have Darkseid's attention beyond something else. Um, but I wonder if it has anything to do with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does sound like something that will just bring destruction, but then another question that it will beg is, will, what is he going to destroy? Is it going to be, you know, that twin planet that we know, or is it going to be, um, is it going to be earth? Okay. Uh, there, there's such a focus on, uh, Batman being non superpowered. Um, I feel like we spend perhaps the better half of the book doing that, if, if not so um, out and saying you're not superpowered, but at least seeing all the fight scenes. And then we see the Bat family together, where he basically is saying, I'm not going to need you. I don't need you, Justice League, but I need the Bat family together. So thinking about him being called you know, the only person without superpowers, how is it going to work if the entire Bat troop, who do not have superpowers, goes to Apocalypse... So do you think, I mean, does this make sense? That's part one of this question. The second part is, how is it going to work out just with them back together in general after, like we've been mentioning a lot, death of the, this is basically the first time that we've seen them all together again. So how's it going to work out? A bunch of non-superpowered beings going to apocalypse and just the fact that this family, which is dysfunctional, uh, together again. I think part of the reason they were so specific about dealing with the fact that Batman doesn't have powers is the fact that, well, one, they all do, and two, the suit itself is giving Batman some sort of powers. We don't know a whole lot about the Hellbat suit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, now we know it was forged by members of the Justice League, but we don't really know a lot about it, so we don't really know what it can and can't do. What doesn't make sense is you know, the fact that he's going to gather his family together to, I guess, deal with this situation that he, he realized he can't do on his own. But he can't trust the people with powers, so he's bringing a bunch of people who don't have powers into the mix to deal with people who specifically, you know, have a, a ridiculous unlimited amount of powers. Um, it seems really odd. I don't really understand it because um, if he said he himself would probably 
die trying to get Damien back if he did this by himself. I don't know why he would bring a bunch of other ones unless he somehow made Hellbat suits for everyone else. I do think it's kind of weird how they, you know, they, they focus on the, you know, you're not superpower. They treat him like he's like their illegitimate stepchild of mm-hmm. the Justice League for a while, um, which is kind of, you know, it's, it's one of those things we all know. So it's it's just kind of where they, they grind it in here. But I am unclear why he thinks taking the rest of the Bat family to Apocalypse is going to work. But that being said, I'm really curious to see this. I think it's actually a really, really good setup because – you know, kind of through the history of DC, whenever you go to Apocalypse, it's Superman, Batman, the big Wonder Woman, all the all the heavy Green Lantern, yada yada yada. Um, so I think that this setup, because you could one could only assume that the, the reason why they're going to go to Apocalypse is that he's got some kind of intricate, well thought out plan that he thinks is going to work. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested to see what what the follow through is going to be for this. As for Stella's point about death of the family, I mean, I think that. <sighs> As much as there was some alienation here, I think that we've seen them start to work together again in Batman Eternal. Um, a definitely a little bit more of, of a relationship. And I think that the fact that this is to to save Damien, some that they all – the majority of the people in, the, in this room look at as, as, a, as a, a little brother type figure. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the, the personalities here could put aside the fact that they're all upset each other to, to help who is essentially their little brother. So – I think they would just kind of put that aside. And, and yeah, I um, it was interesting. I think this was one of the bigger um, say what moments uh, in, in this book thus far. And I think first of all, it was very interesting and, and something that I talked to Tomasi about the fact that this for a the first time in a long time is actually Batman and Robin. It wasn't Batman and Frankenstein, Batman and Rachel Ghoul. It was back to what we had known from the beginning and I wondered, Hey, is that a tease or, you know, um, are you looking at something a little too deeply? Um, so we're back to, to almost the status quo, I guess. Um, but to think that he comes and, and he says, I don't want anything to do with the justice league. In fact, they were somewhat obnoxious to be honest, but to come with, you know, back to his cave and, and, and gather his family was not only, Oh, you know, it was, an, it was a nice, heartfelt moment to see them all together, but it also kind of makes me a little nervous, just this group of, of people about to go, really, to fight someone that's way out of their league and to know that there are some problems. And I'm hoping, I, I feel like there are going to be some awkward interactions, and I think that that is normal if there weren't any. I think that would be a bit of a problem. But I, I think, just like Ed was saying, I mean, this is about the love between a father and a son and kind of the ultimate, like, we need to save him. So I think they'll all be able to to get together and, and, and work hard. My final question, if I may, just your thoughts on uh, Justice League's appearance, how they were used not only in the end of the previous issue, but this one and their interaction with Batman. Because I kind of had a problem with it, and I, I wondered if you guys enjoyed it or had a problem too. Well, I, I, you know, I understand your point about Shazam. He does come Ugh. across extremely annoying. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's actually the way he is because I, I, I don't have a lot of, you know, uh, I don't have a lot of history with reading the character. But I mean, he, he comes across as like a snotty kid, and I understand, you know, maybe that's maybe that is the point. Um, but. At the same point, um, or not, not necessarily a snotty kid, but like, you know, an unexperienced kid. Um, but outside of that, you know, I, I don't know. 
Tomasi seems to be one of the few few writers within the Batman universe who's you know including some of the characters outside of the Bat family. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You know we've you know we've seen Superman pop up here and there in some of the stories. You know in Batman and Robin or in the actual pages of Batman and Robin, we've seen Wonder Woman, Frankenstein, who's not part of the Justice League, Wonder Woman and Aquaman pop up, helping Bruce kind of find his find Damien. So I think. You know, in some ways, it makes sense to bring it up. Um, I feel like the reason they brought it up is almost is like a you know, it's foreshadowing something that's going to happen. The fact that the that the Justice League is saying it's a bad idea. We shouldn't mess with Darkseid right now. It hasn't been that long since we we last had to deal with him. It's probably not a good idea to like stir the pot and try to get him you know to come back here to Earth. Um, I feel like that's almost foreshadowing something where maybe the Justice League will end up having to come to Apocalypse to deal with Darkseid because of something that Batman does because he is stuck on this one mission and not thinking necessarily about the overall picture of everything. So I think that's almost – it almost feels like that's what's happening. Yeah, I would agree with that. I will say that um, the Justice League does seem to be wrote a little out of character here. Uh, and Shazam is awfully annoying in this in this instance. Uh, but even Wonder Woman, um, they, they seem to be wrote just. It seems like their voices are, are are a bit off. I mean, they are can be overbearing it from time to time. But this kind of uh, level of almost hostility towards towards Bruce and and this extreme you know jumping without without looking mentality is uh, does seem does seem to be a bit off the way they act. So yeah, I, I found that I found their appearance here to be. Uh, strange to, to, to put it mildly yeah and i think it was weird also aquaman just him taking the lead position of it yeah <laughs> being in charge and saying you know there are more things there are more important things than you know just jetting off to apocalypse and just thinking about who he normally is and and almost hating all i mean i guess that's pre new 52 but the fact that you know he really dwells in the sea, and he ca- takes care of his own personal business, and he's very, I think, selfish to a certain extent. So it's very odd hearing a lesson from him. It was like the pot kettle, calling the kettle black. Uh, but just, you know, the fighting, I was like, this is unnecessary. I can see on Batman's side, you know, why he's doing it, because they won't let him go, but it was just super frustrating. Especially, I mean, getting the history lesson from Lex Luthor, it's like all of the, the things we're reading now in Batman, because we saw Jason Todd schooling Barbara is like someone on the wrong side of the track schooling somebody else so it's it was just strange and I, I think the best interaction and perhaps we could have just done without everything and only had this was Superman visiting Batman at the end and and it almost reminded me of Noel when he comes Batman Noel that graphic novel we reviewed several years ago uh, when he comes in and talks to him and tries to you know be a friend to him I think that was the best one yeah I agree I think the Superman interaction was we could have skipped the rest of it, and that would have been all, all we needed. Yep. Agreed. All right, Batman Robin number 33. I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five bat rings. Two and a half out of five. I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five as well. And over on the website, Corbin gave the issue three and a half out of five bat ranks. That's going to give Batman Robin number 33 a total of three and a half out of five bat ranks. Let's move into our next book, Detective Comics, annual number three. Do you remember that wonderfully hellish August Batman? Comics Annual Number Three: mm-hmm. Icarus Chaos Theory. Writer Brian Buscelletto. Artist Scott Hepburn. 
mana pull off for the annual. Uh, before I, I review, I, I give the summary to everyone out there listening, just a, a quick heads up. This whole storyline is a, a prequel to Icarus. Uh, so do not get confused, as your current uh, reviewer did when he started reading. Um, the story opens in the men's room, where we see Bruce put on an EMP mask uh, way back, ish, first developed in Batman number one in the New 52. And he takes on the persona of Matches Malone and approaches none other than Julian Day. After some harsh words between the two, Matches tells him that they are intended consequences and the two square off to fight. Uh, we then go back in time one hour and we see a gang called the Bastards of Blackgate, leaving Dante to guard the supply of the drug Icarus. Uh, we see Dante call someone and tell them that he loves them uh, before picking up a syringe of Icarus and holding it in his hand. Inside a limo, we see uh, the squid telling Julian Day that he is in charge of, of the operation over his brother Johnny. Uh, as we get out of the limo, Julian insists that Johnny comes to the bar and joins him in a drink. Uh, Julian does a intimida intimidation routine on Johnny, smacks him around a little bit in the bar, and then goes to the bathroom where we saw the uh, the scene with Matches Malone start at the beginning of the uh, of the issue. Uh, we then see Batman beating up some thugs in the Narrows. It seems the gang has got his hands on the Wraith's weapons during the blackout, and he wants to know where the rest of the weapons are. How The only person that, that can come forward with any information is a child uh, whose name is Aiden. He tells Batman that he knows where the weapons are, and Batman finally gets the information out of him that he was looking for the weapons because he wanted to protect himself from the people that wanted to hurt him, namely his father, uh, who hits him and even forgot that today, October the 9th, is his birthday. Uh, we then see a, a scene where Dante uh, is riding bikes with Annette from our main Icarus story. Uh, Dante tell, tells her that she is a better rider indeed after they have a little match. Uh, we find out that Dante is the one who got her into drugs, but together they're, they're both clean and they are planning to leave town uh, later that night or, or the next morning together. Uh, we then cut back to the fight at the beginning of the story where uh, Bruce, in, in the guise of Matches Malone, uh, beats down Julian Day. I mean, gives him a rather severe beating uh, that he seems to deserve and tells him what a low life he is for not only hurting his child but not being able to remember his birthday. As Julian lies on the floor after the beating, Matches tells him to get himself a calendar. Uh, we see J Johnny comes in and sees it. The Julian is in, in, incapacitated and thinks it's his big chance to make a move. Uh, we then see Batman show up at the location that Aiden gave him uh, where the weapons are hidden. He makes quick work of the men on guard and then calls in for a drone to pick up the weapons and do an inventory. Uh, we then cut back to Dante, who's, who's guarding the Icarus. He's on the phone with Elena, um, and he tells her that he loves her, and she begins to see some, hear some gunfire in, in the background. Uh, he nervously gets off the phone with her, and uh, leaves her pretty terrified because she can hear all those gunshots. Uh, then Johnny and his men enter, but before they can even bother to kill Dante, he uh, he overdoses on the Icarus and burns up, as we've seen happen to a few people in the past. Uh, we then see Holter from the main story confronting uh, Lowe, our friend Squid at the aquarium. Uh, Holter tells him that he will be back if he finds out that he is, in fact, the one who stole the Icarus for him, and next time it will not be to talk. Uh, and Johnny is blaming Julian Day for stealing all the Icarus that he has stolen because Julian's apparently knocked out somewhere and uh, no one knows where he is. Um, as Batman stops by to see Aiden, uh, Julian's son again, and thank him for the information, uh, we find out that he has been kidnapped by the Big Bastard, who is the head of the, uh, the gang. Um, at the compound where the Big Bastard and his men are, it is Batman, of course, that shows up to save Aiden, not Julian Day, his father. 
Uh, so Batman shows up and rescues the child. And at the end, we see him given by Bruce Wayne to the Ogulia Shelter for Children and Women. The end. Um, I guess the most obvious question to ask here, and the one I'm most curious to see what you guys think is, what do you think of this as a new origin story and a new look for Calendar Man in the New 52? Well, here's the thing. Um, I honestly have to say I wasn't really – I didn't really like it. Um, you know, the the idea that Calendar Man stems from getting a beating from Matches Malone, who obviously is Bruce Wayne, and then is told to get a calendar and that somehow prompts him to become Calendar Man seems really weird. Um, Calendar Man, you know, is a, a guy who's obsessed with dates. Um, basically, all of his crimes are based around specific dates on the calendar or holidays specifically and things like that. So, I mean, like, the thing is, I don't understand how, the, like, what happened is going to prompt him to become who he is. Unless Matches Malone beat the sense out of him and he hit his head really hard and he is now just cuckoo. And the last thing that's in his brain is, you know, the idea of a calendar and that's what happened. But knowing that this person was created by Matches Malone seems weird. I mean, okay, fine. He, you know, he had ties to being a bad guy in the first place before Matches came in contact with him. But I think it's just weird how we, you know, we're basically putting the creation of this character solely on Batman. Uh. I think the one thing that I did really like about it is the fact that he he was completely different than we know him and, and that he has no sense of times and he, well, to a certain extent, I guess, because um, I think there's a little bit of like reading into it because it's all hinging on the um, the sun, but he's just like a big goon. So he, he is so completely different than, than what we have seen of him in the past. But I do agree with Dustin that, I mean, all of a sudden he gets beat up by Matches Malone, which of course beaten beat up by Batman could potentially change anyone. But he's, I mean, he must have been hit so hard that he, he almost seems like crazy. He's just kind of muttering to himself about getting a calendar. So I, I feel like perhaps instead of like a physical beating or, or something like that, that it would have made more sense for, for something else to happen um, to, to make him change into the, the Julian day that we know and potentially love. But I just thought it was pretty interesting to see him as a very different person and now but but I think it's very important to to show how that transition happens and and I feel like that's where we we lost it. There's a couple things here that I think are interesting. One I think that it's kind of telling in the bar when he tells Johnny that, you know, that everyone's got to have a nickname in Gotham. That's how you make your mark, you know, that he, that's why the Joker and the Black Mask. So he kind of brings it full circle that he's kind of looking for a moniker that he knows that's how you need to get known. Um, like I said, this is a totally different story of his arrival into the new 52, that uh, he's beaten into, beaten into being calendar man. Um, now the one thing that could be interesting is he seems to be a big enough a guy and possibly strong enough of a guy that he could maybe become some kind of physical threat to Batman, which would be interesting as opposed to the original calendar man type deal. The other thing before I, I really get into the last question that I want everyone's thoughts on is at the end of most DC comics, we have that channel 
52 thing. Mm -hmm. And you ever notice there's a calendar man in there who is more like a traditional calendar man. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, I mean, that matters at all? Is that just publicity from DC's publicity department? I honestly feel like that's just publicity. The fact that, I mean, like, they're using these off-the-wall characters. You know, they created this character, Bethany Snow. They... They're using Ambush Bug and they're using Calendar Man. I mean, does anybody really think that the character, that the whole basis of them, you know, focusing on, well, indirectly focusing on Julian Day in the annual is supposed to lead up to his involvement with uh, Channel 52? I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing that, you know, well, Julian Day has always been a little, you know, off his rocker when it comes to things. So the involvement with him in New 52 makes perfect sense or the New 52 channel, I should say, Channel 52 uh, makes sense. Um, But I don't think I don't think it's related in any way. I would agree. Yeah, it's funny. I only brought it up because when I was looking at some stuff online, some people actually do, and I thought it was kind of nuts myself. Um, but I guess the other question I have is, this whole thing is a is obviously a prequel to the curious, current Icarus that's going on. So I guess my, my question is, do you feel like this is something that is, gonna, is going to is bring you some enjoyment and, and filling in some gaps in the Icarus storyline, or would you have rather seen more story moving forward than, than looking backwards, as we saw in this kind of like prequel issue? You know, in some ways, I think it would have been nice to move the story along, but I think this is fine. And the reason why I think this is fine is when you look at some of the other stories that have been told in some of the annuals, specifically just Batman and Detective Comics, they sometimes deal with the story, but in a very indirect way. And I think this is probably the most closely related annual to the current storyline, specifically because, I mean, it's even though it is a prequel, it's leading up the events of the story. Is it necessary? No, you don't need to read it to understand what's going on in Icarus. Does it add to the story? Yeah, it gives a little bit of, you know, some information that you didn't know before. It sets some things up, but do you really need to have it in order to, you know, understand what exactly is going on in the main story? No. So I think in some ways, it's nice because it's an excuse to do an oversized issue that gives you more information without needing to give it to you. So I think it works. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I always think annuals need to have a purpose for their existence. And, and sometimes we've, we've seen them fall flat and sometimes, uh, I think they're well done. And, and I think this one's sort of in the middle. I think Julian Day, we could have potentially left out, because unless he's going to play a big part with the squid coming up, which it almost seems like he's not since the little brother was kind of making his way, um, you know, why have him in there? But I like the fact that we're getting to know the Icarus a little bit more. And I like also seeing Annie and showing that, my goodness, she's got a bigger connection with Icarus um, than we had originally thought. She had more tragic elements than we originally thought because, you know, she basically just lost her uh, boyfriend while she was talking to him on the phone. And now, you know, she's lost her um, her mother. So I think for Annie purposes, like I could have almost seen it be like just uh, an Annie-focused issue. Um, but 
I think that that's really where it shined, just getting to know her and seeing her backstory and and to know that she um, used to be a, an addict and, and she got clean and everything. And I, I think that going forward, since we know that she's kind of being pulled in two different directions and it almost seems like she may at some point have to choose between Batman and the Kings of the Sun, I think it's good to get to know this character a little bit more before we invest in her in the future. Yeah, I think that... This is nice because I, I think if you had skipped it, you could probably have just read Icarus without without this. But I think this does add a, a lot of background here, and I, I think that you probably could have changed the Julian Day character to Johnny Appleseed, whatever. It doesn't matter, and the story would have would have held up the same. I'll give it a, a big pass because I like so much of what the new creative team is doing that I'm going to assume that they have a future plan for Julian Day. Maybe the storyline after Icarus. Uh, we'll get back to him. Um, but no, I, I do think that this, it, this adds enough to the current story, but it's still kind of its own standalone story. Um, I wish more annuals were, were like this. I thought it was, that was well done. All right. So detective comics annual number three, I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five batterings. I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. And I'll agree with that and give it a four out of five. And over on the website, Corbin Poole gave it three out of five. So that is going to give Detective Comics annual number three a total of three and a half out of five batterings. All right. So with that, that's going to bring us into our next book, Batman Eternal number 15. Batman Eternal number 15, written by Ray Fox, art by Dustin Wen. The issue starts off with Jim Corrigan and Batwing making their way into Arkham Asylum. They notice that the receptionist is not actually a real receptionist, but rather is Magpie um, disguised as a receptionist. Uh, we then see them go through Arkham Asylum and they see that the entire place has been turned into... Some kind of crazy place that is controlled by all of the inmates. All of the guards are either dead or taken out in some way. Um, meanwhile, over the Pacific Ocean, Harper Rowe reveals that she's there only when Tim Drake says he knows that she's there. After they discuss where in fa- how, how in fact that uh, she got onto the, the ship, uh, he says, stay on the ship. I have to go meet this person who is dealing with those nanobots. She insists on going with specifically because, you know, he's involved because this is all having to do with uh, the nanobots being unleashed on her neighborhood and specifically her brother. We then cut back to Arkham where Batwing and Jim Corrigan continue to go through. They notice that the Riddler has some sort of code that's written on the wall, but he's not there. They get come across Scarecrow's cell and he's not there but there's blood coming from the floor and going up through the ceiling uh they proceed through arkham asylum they come across the 10 the 10 eyed man uh but he is in fact nothing that they care about just a cameo there they continue on uh jim corrigan starts to sense magic but uh the ma- uh, the magic spell that he put on batwing is protecting batwing for the time being they come across scarecrow whose body is floating up in the air and his blood is being pulled from his body and going through the floor uh we then cut through or we continue to go through arkham where the the demons that are haunting arkham start to take batwing and jim corrigan and it appears that they have separated them we then see Jason Bard taking down some more thugs. Batman approaches him and finally shakes his hand after we he didn't shake his hand in the previous time they met. Uh, we then see the demons 
suck Batwing through the floor, telling Jim and uh, Jim and Batwing says, Jim, you need to turn in the Spectre, but he doesn't really have any control over it. In Rio de Janeiro, we see Red Hood and Batgirl approach the plastic surgeon in question. Uh, when they burst in the door, it turns out Batwoman found out first. And Batgirl says, uh, I, I, you know, I, I understand you've got your questions, but I get to go first. Um, 100 feet beneath Arkham Asylum, Batwing is now in the presence of Joker's daughter. And in the basement of Arkham Asylum, we see... Jim Corrigan meet the person who is, I guess, behind everything. His name is Mr. Bygone. So just, uh, I guess, two quick questions. The first one is Mr. Bygone. I did a little bit of research. I could not find anything about this character. He is, he is in fact, a new character. Um, the He kind of looks, in my opinion, like a small humanoid version of Frankenstein, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, Thoughts on the reveal of his character in in the terms of how these demons are somehow being controlled by him or if he's part of or if he's just another one of these demons or, you know, thoughts behind his character. Because really outside of a very short uh, explanation of to who he is in the next issue, we don't really see this character a lot, and he does he is not actually the the main baddie that's down in the depths of Arkham Asylum. I kind of forgot about this character till you just brought him back up, which I guess is tells me everything I need to know about him. I mean, he's not. I mean, he's not the main bad guy. Uh, he's pretty quickly forgotten here. Um, I kind of just looked at him as maybe like an upper level lieutenant that happened to get a name, but yeah, I didn't feel that the character really had any, I don't know, any staying power to him at all. Yeah. When, I don't know. It's all this stuff that goes on in Arkham Asylum, I think is really weird. And I feel like it's more of a, like if you were to think about how detective comics was in the past and, you know, starting, I guess, in the Bronze Age, Bronze Age, Bronze Era <laughs> of comics. <laughs> yeah, it sounded weird. Uh, you know, the stuff that's going on in Arkham very much seems like a tertiary story that's not necessarily going to impact the big stuff that's going on with uh, James uh, Gordon and all of the, um, the stuff with Bard and everything. So when he popped up, I'm just like, oh boy, another character in this particular story that I have no idea what's going on. I don't think he's as big a player as we need to be concerned with, like Falcone or or the person running everything. Okay, and then the other question I have is, obviously the focuses with Ray Fox are about the supernatural element. Mm -hmm. Do you feel as if this issue, I mean, we talked about this last episode where we talked about the last couple issues and how they've done a really nice job of like molding a lot of these other storylines together. Even though the, the the scripts are being written by specific writers amongst the you know the the creative group that is behind Batman Eternal, do you feel like this one did as good of a job as the issues with Tinian? Even though the focus was specifically on the supernatural Arkham Asylum stuff, I, I think that it does a fine job. I just think that it's it, it took us so long. I, I can't remember how many issues it was now between the last one and this one mm-hmm. that 
that there was so much of a gap that it, it felt like we were getting back into a story we hadn't read in, and I think it's because it's a weekly, you know, that we hadn't read in forever. Um, I think they do just the the job is just as good. I think that the story is is going somewhere. It is definitely like Stella said, the tertiary story. That definitely that, but I feel like they're, the the co- cohesive parts just fine. I feel that the kind of maybe the feel of being disjointed that you get when you read it is just that it's been so long since we were involved in it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's as. Um, I don't know. I, I do agree that because there was such a large gap when we were all kind of jaw dropped as to why we've got these weird things, and then with Batwing and Spectre, this weird team up, and then we never saw them again. Um, I, I agree that that is part of the problem. But I, I feel like this is just a mishmash of different elements. Different people were trying to put in as many guest stars as possible in Arkham Asylum, make it really creepy and supernatural, and it's just not coming together well. I, I don't think it's as good or cohesive as the other stories that we've got going on. I almost feel like part of the issue is that the, I think one of the biggest issues with this supernatural stuff is the 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 usage of Joker's daughter. You know, I didn't read the Joker's Daughter one shot that came out uh, earlier this year. I don't know if Marguerite Bennett ended up making the character a little bit better than the pages of what I was reading in the pages of Catwoman because the character just came across as completely uninteresting ever since I read her in in the pages of Catwoman and that uh, Villains Month issue last year. So that being said i don't know if the reason why they decided to use the character was because that one shot came out and they felt like she was more relevant because the one shot was happening i'm not sure it just to me it doesn't make a lot of sense of why she's been used why she has some sort of connection to the supernatural element other than and and then you know you know this is going into the future issues but the fact that deacon blackfire is this character who is Basically, she's working with and how those two come to be together. I don't know if this was ever explained in Catwoman. I don't know if it was explained in the one shot. I have no idea how this was explained. Last time I read anything with Joker's daughter was she was a character who basically killed somebody and took over these underling people who were in the depths of Gotham. Mm -hmm. That's basically what I was under the assumption of. So how she amounted to being involved with all of these demons and these, you know, crazy weird looking creatures. Maybe they're just mutated. I don't know. I don't, I don't know anything about it. I don't know how we got there. And I think that's probably the biggest disconnect I'm having with this supernatural story is I don't know how we got here. Um, you know, yes, we're kind of thrown into it based off of the characters we're following like they are, they're thrown into the situation, but I just almost feel like we, we should know how this happened and and it probably will be explained over time. I just feel like setting up the character as this massive person who has basically taken control of goth or Arkham Asylum doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It also feels like the story is going to wrap up soon because I assume that based off of all the stuff that's happening in Arkham Asylum here, that's going to lead to Arkham Manor later on in October. So I assume this would probably get wrapped up before then, but it just seems weird how she's included. But anyway, uh, Eternal number 15, I'm going to give a total of two and a half out of five bad ranks. Three out of five. Yeah, I'll give it a three out of five as well. And over on the website, Corbin gave it four. 
Batman Eternal number 15 gets a total of three out of five bad ranks. Let's move into the next book, Batman Eternal number 16. Batman Eternal number 16, written by Ray Fox, yet again, with art by Dustin Wynn. Again, uh, the issue starts off with basically kind of uh, what appears to be the information, the backstory back of uh, this Mr. Bygone. If it is somebody different, I, I wouldn't be surprised considering the character does look very different despite the fact that the artist is the, the same. This character is explaining how he came to be, um, but he in turn sets out these demons to take out the specter spirit from Jim Corrigan. Uh, we see Batman get a phone call from Batwing. As it turns out, uh, Joker's daughter somehow knows exactly how to use Batwing's tech that wasn't working in the last issue and also uh, can impersonate him to make Batman believe that everything is A-OK at Arkham Asylum. Uh, We see Batman yet again watching Bard take out a number of thugs. One of the thugs actually uh, ends up taking the cop's gun. Bard shoots him through the thumb. Uh, Vicky Vale approaches and says, listen, you've got my number. Uh, we should, you know, you should give me a call. And he says, is it because you want a story or is it because you want to see me? And she just kind of stares at him. Uh, back at Arkham Asylum, we see Professor Pig being escorted into Arkham Asylum where he's handed over to, uh, Magpie and uh, Professor Milo. I guess the guards have no idea who these people are. Uh, Professor Pig is then led to his cell where it appears some sort of spirit is now taking him um, to be saved. Um, In Tokyo, we see Red Robin and Harper Rowe approach a place where they believe Sir Jay is, where they are attacked by some weird mechanical tentacles and they take him out. Um, They end up. Harper actually takes them out by infecting some sort of virus into the tech. Um, in the process, Sergey comes out and says, that was a test and uh, you survived, so now we can talk. Um, back at Arkham Asylum, uh, the, th- the hand of one of the demons is buried in the chest of Jim Corrigan, but it turns out that there's no way that the specter comes out just when he's called. Uh, Mr. Bygone gets punched in the face and we see Jim Corrigan leave. Um, we then see Joker's daughter taunting Batman or Batwing, and he basically figures out a way to break loose. And in the process, she introduces him to the vessel, Maxi Zeus. Uh, Maxi Zeus is a, goes to attack Batwing. Batwing tries to take him out, but nothing's working because he's basically huge. After trying to strangle him with some sort of cord, um, he finds out that a number of his tech in his suit is still not working. He's prioritizing certain things to get repaired, but uh, some of it's not going to work. Um, He leaves Maxi Zeus behind and somehow the demons take the body away. Um, He's trying to find Jim Corrigan, but it's not happening. Uh, He finds a person who is part of who was actually part of the staff of Arkham Asylum, but a demon or spirit arises from the body and um, goes after Batwing. In turn, uh, Jim Corrigan shows up, knocks the staff member's head, and the spirit goes back inside the body. If you're lost, I'm just as lost as everyone else. Um, And then finally, they discover who, in fact, is behind all of this. It's Deacon Blackfire. 
All right, Batman Eternal 16. Uh, pretty much a carry-on from the last uh, or last issue. We learned nothing really about Mr. Bygone. He almost feels like he was revealed to be this character only so that he would be taken out. I mean, like, if this is a legitimate character that is somebody from the past, I don't know about it. I did a, a decent amount of research to try to find somebody related to this, and I couldn't. So I'm trying to figure out what the point of bringing this character in having him revealed as this character who's in Arkham Asylum only to be punched in the face by Jim Corrigan less than a couple pages after his reveal. Um, that being said, we get the reveal of Deacon Blackfire actually being the person who is controlling all of these weird demons, spirits, ghosts, whatever the heck they are. Um, the introduction of Deacon Blackfire, what did you guys think of that? I liked it. I mean, the, the, st- the story surrounding it's a bit of a uh, you know mixed bag, but I, I kind of like the introduction of him. I think that it's interesting to bring him back. Um, I really enjoyed the cult back in the day, so I might be prejudiced towards seeing a, a character who I enjoyed in the past showing back up. Uh, but no, I thought it was uh, I thought it was handled well. I think that this is an interesting mix to Eternal um, with adding him to it. My only issue, because again, I, I feel like seventeen is probably more interesting than um, yes. this particular oh, yeah. one. Um, but again, I just have an it, so many characters that were that are being <laughs> thrown at us, and we had seen this in the beginning, and I thought that it had sort of tailored off and it wasn't happening anymore. But now we've gotten back to this storyline, and I feel like now we've got to catch up, and we've got all this stuff. So I just the only problem with him being introduced is I feel it's just in a very confused story in this issue i think the next issue is much better but you know and and just being overwhelmed with this particular arc um so that's the only thing that brings it down okay the other question i have is kind of a minor one um we see red robin and harper roll come across sergey they're talking to him um and it's interesting to me that sergey who's known to create these crazy nanobots Harper Rowe is easily is so easily able to just infect his tech with some sort of virus that takes it out. It almost feels like they're setting her up as this, you know, more than normal tech guru. Mm-hmm. The fact that he is creating advanced stuff that nobody's ever even seen before, and she's able to take his stuff out with the flip of her cell phone. Well, so you're saying it's not believable? Well, I'm saying it's hard to believe. I'm not saying it's not completely believable because we've seen her do some other, you know, tech stuff in the past, you know, even outside of Eternal. Mm -hmm. So it's entirely possible that she could. But do you think that she would be at the same level as the guy who's creating nanobots? I mean, she infected Tim Drake. She was able to break into his stuff. So isn't it to get into, I feel like that's even worse. If you're able to break into Tim Drake, shouldn't into and potentially like Batman's tech, don't you think you could be able to do anything? Then why wouldn't she be? Make, why would she still be living in the slums if that was actually the case? I think it's consistent though with what we've been shown of her character. I mean, you can debate the fact that should she know that much, but I think her character when it first got introduced back in Batman by Snyder was because she was helping repair Batman's tech around the city. The city, you know. Um, now you can argue that. Why she's living in the slums is a perfectly valid excuse for someone who could probably hack into a computer and at the very least get her and her, her brother a nice apartment paid for. 
Well, no, it's not even that. I, I'm not saying that she has to like do something that's against the law. I'm saying like, why isn't she working for a, a company if she has these skills? I mean, we don't know exactly how old she is. We can assume she, it's probably early twenties, but I would assume that she probably never went to college. Um, so I'm, I mean, the 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 skills that she has have been shown. I'm not going to deny that. But I, I, what I'm saying is, like, it seems like she should be working at some sort of, like, giant corporation creating all kinds of crazy stuff if she has these skills and is so young and doesn't even have a college education. So it seems out of character to a point where she's living in the slums with her brother. Her brother's going to a school and being harassed by kids at school, as we've seen in previous Mm -hmm. stories with her. But yet she has these skills that she just doesn't do anything with to make her and her brother have a better life. I'm not saying she has to hack into a bank and, you know, transfer money out. But what I am saying is it doesn't make any sense where she doesn't have a job that she could be making a significant amount of money if she has this sort of ability. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, does she have skills to be gainfully employed? Yeah, I think that that's that's fairly obvious. Now, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the job market's like in Gotham right now. It could be a could be a down job market. I don't know. I mean, I, I, okay. Based off the skills, though, she could like go work with Lucius Fox on the same level as him. The way they're showing her skills. Well, and there's some level too where you wonder why Batman hasn't helped her get a legitimate job. I mean, he could make one called a Lucius, like you said, and she could be gamely employed by Wayne Enterprises by the end of the week. You know, which we've which we've seen like a ridiculous amount of times since the New Fifty Two. How many different villains have worked for Wayne Enterprises at some point? Yeah, no, I think that that's would make sense if if, if that was done. But for whatever reason, the creative team decided not to do that with her because I think they want her to go down the route of not being an employee at Wayne Enterprises, but with you know with the Bluebird stuff coming up that we know happens from our sneak peek issue. I think the reason why they haven't done it is because they want her to go down the hero path. I mean, I mean, I know that's not a good reason for storyline wise, but I think that that's why they're taking the development route with her that, that they are. And I mean, she is, I feel like still a kid. Um, I, I feel like she's not an adult yet. I mean, has she graduated high school? Do we know that specifically about her? No, not necessarily, but you have to think of, okay, her da- her dad's in, in prison. Yeah. And they're living in an apartment in the slums. Yeah. So somebody has to pay rent on that apartment. So if she's, I mean, her dad obviously is not paying the rent unless that's going to be revealed at some point that like, whoever so. her dad was working uh-huh. for is paying the rent on the place so the kids can stay there. Right. There, there's some sort of problem with the fact that they're living in an apartment regardless of where it is or how small it is they're living in this apartment building and it's not just like some homeless shelter so it doesn't make a lot of sense where somebody would have to be making money and if she's making money why isn't she making more money if she can do this insane stuff yeah i feel like maybe it was revealed that she was doing some freelance stuff for some people but i don't think she has like a steady job of any kind um i don't know if she's that responsible i mean her her main focus i think is taking care of her brother and anything that takes away from that um 
I don't think she wants anything to do with. And and the only reason she's off on this mission right now is because her brother's infected with nanobots. So she's got to figure out what's going on. Um, I also think that, I mean, in this day and age, you see someone like Harper Rowe. I don't know if she's going to get hired, to be honest. Think about some of the people who work at some of these tech companies, though. I guess. They're completely off the wall. They don't need to have a specific <laughs> look at the tech companies. I don't know. So I think that... I don't know. I think we're a judgmental society that we look at someone and we may not hire them. Right, and, and you know, I I would agree, I would agree with that, but I just have this odd suspicion that if you had incredibly mad skills yeah. with technology and being able to create things and program things instantaneously to do whatever you want, I have this odd suspicion that somebody would be like, I don't care what she looks like. She's worth every dollar we'd ever pay her. Yeah. But isn't the, the overriding thing really that she may not have a job at a place like that because she's not looking for one. I mean, isn't kind of the whole deal behind what she's doing is trying to help Batman and, and wants to become a hero and become involved in that world? I don't see Harper walking into a place looking for a job. I know realistic that make that may make the most amount of sense, but I don't see that that's something she would take the time to do is go look for a, a job. I think she feels like she has a job, quote unquote. Right, and I agree. I, I, I mean, I don't want to spend too much in, into this. It's just like when you look at it from... Everything she does is for her brother, the perspective that you you said, Stella. And then you look from the perspective that you said, Ed, where it's, you know, maybe she's not actually looking for a job and she's just, she's just doing this stuff so that she can become involved in Batman's universe. You know, when you mold those two together, some of them don't make a lot of sense because you look at it from the perspective of she's out for, you know, helping her, you know, all about her brother, and you look at it from, okay, so then why would she, you know, as we've seen in the past, her going out at night to, you know, beat up criminals uh, in in the area that she lives in, or why would she not want to, you know, get a job that would pay more so they wouldn't have to live in this horrible place, and he wouldn't have to go to a school that, you know, he gets harassed at. There's certain things that just don't add up, and I'm not I mean, I'm I'm almost positive some some of it's going to end up getting explained, so that's why I don't want to dwell on it too much. But it was just something that I I I, I brought that came up in my mind is interesting when you put it all put everything we know about the character together. All right, so Batman Eternal number sixteen. I'm going to give three out of five bat ranks. Three out of five sounds right to me. Two point five out of five. There you go. And over on the website, Corbin gave it four. So that is going to give Batman Eternal number 16 a total of 3 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our last book, Batman Eternal number 17. Batman Eternal number 17, written again by Ray Fox, art by Dustin Wynn. We start off with seeing the kind of the origin story of Deacon Blackfire. It turns out he is giving ser- sermons to what appears to be a, the underprivileged crowd or in some cases, some of the homeless crowd of Gotham. And we then see him talking, or we see, then see Joker's daughter with her face completely bandaged, emerging from a cavern with uh, Luke Fox's head. And we find out that's actually a dream of Luke's friend. He tries to get a hold of Batwing, but it's not happening. Uh, we then see Batwing uh, and Jim Corrigan, uh, what, what it looks like to be, they go from standing next to a bunch of these weird demon spirits to what appears to be swimming next to them. We cut to Tokyo where we see Sergei asking Harper Rowe how exactly she was able to do what she did. Um, Maxwell, the monkey, goes after Harper and tries to stab her, but in turn, she 
pulls out her cell phone, flips a switch, and suddenly the monkey zaps because he gets electrocuted. Uh, Tim says, listen, your nanobots are there. I don't care if you say they're stolen or not. You're coming back to Gotham with us. And uh, Sergey says, I like the way your friend here operates. Uh, we then see three years ago, Deacon Blackfire consoling his, his uh, group of followers. He then says that uh, after he says that he's there to help them um, out with their problems and all their hopes have slipped away, but he's there to raise their hopes. They turned Park Row into Crime Alley and he's here to help them take it back. Um, he then tells them that some of them he has a he has a meal waiting for them in the other room. He proceeds down to the basement where we find out that he has Batman chained up to a water pipe and uh, we then cut to Wayne Manor where Julia Pennyworth is questioning Alfred about his logic behind leaving England and the Secret Service to or we then see Julia questioning Alfred about his decision to become a servant and you know leaving his old life behind after she questions and says it doesn't make any sense what it appears is that he is going to the Grandfather clock that is the entrance to the Batcave with her following in tow. We then see Batwing and Jim Corrigan taking on a number of the demons yet again. We then see the, the previous, you know, the uh, flashback of Deacon Blackfire and them talking about the fact that, uh, he told all of his followers to basically kill Batman. Batman says, why don't you do it yourself? Um, he, Deacon Blackfire says, um, that he's pretty much can't do it himself because his followers will do it for him. Batman starts turning the minds of the followers who are drugged into a point where they basically understand that maybe the Deacon is not exactly what he wants, what he's leading them on to believe. Batman escapes from the water pipe in, in the process of kicking Deacon Blackfire into the followers, and it appears that the followers are going to basically kill him or do something, but... They attack Deacon Blackfire while Batman just stands by and watches. Uh, we then see Deacon Blackfire in the present day talking next to uh, talking to Spectre um, with Joker's daughter next to her, and uh, she is talking to somebody and she keeps referring to him as Daddy. Um, so we don't know if the Joker is actually there, but whatever the person is saying is coming across as a bunch of lines. Um, we then see Deacon Blackfire release. His, they, he basically turns his demon, demon spirits into bats, man-bat creatures, and in the process we see uh, Jim Corrigan begging the Spectre to unleash, but it's not happening. Um, and we see a spirit come up to Jim Corrigan and says, Can you say hallelujah, Detective Corrigan? Can you say amen as uh, the demon pulls Jim Corrigan into the darkness of the abyss flood that surrounds them? Next, Croc Attack. Batman Eternal number 17. Okay, so more Deacon Blackfire here. Um, what do you think of his, basically his his origin within the New 52 that they've per perceived? And do you believe that he has somehow been resurrected into... You know, we see that Maxi Zeus is this vessel that they spoke of before, and that Deacon Blackfire somehow is, uh, it looks like the two bodies have emerged or something, and Maxi Zeus is walking around for him, but Deacon Blackfire is the one controlling him. How do you feel the 
origin story worked compared with what we see him now as this weird spirit that is taking over Max Zeus's body? It's a good question. I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I think that it works well enough for the story. Um, I'm curious to see where it's going to go. If it goes anywhere, I, I would be, if this is kind of like the last we see of it, then I, then this would just be, um, symbolic of a lot of, of, of window dressing type stuff for me. Um, it, it seems interesting enough. Um, again, you're throwing more and more characters in the mix with Maxi Zeus, you now Deacon Blackfire. Um, so it, it does seem to be like we're just using characters for non-traditional ways just to put their names on, on, on paper in a way. Um, it's it's well enough, but I'm I'm more concerned about where it's gonna go. But as an origin story, I guess it it's it's fine. Um, it's it's interesting to compare the two. I really liked his origin. Um, just and and I'm sorry, but I have to say that it he almost reminded me of the good Reverend Stryker in um, God Loves Man Kills, which is a X Men original graphic novel. Um, just the way that he's able to sway the people. However, you, you learn that he was somewhat drugging them. But um, it's just kind of interesting how how he does have this popular figure about him, and he's a good public speaker, and he seems good on the inside. And then next page, give him you know the drug and and take me to our prisoners, things like that. Um, so getting down to his creepiness factor, uh, you know, I think I, I like that origin. Going from someone who uses really concrete means to get at Batman, to get at people who are following him and really becoming a cult leader to all of a sudden changing into like supernatural means, like somehow he's able to resurrect himself and he's using somebody else. It seems a little strange. Um, I, I feel like he and Scarecrow, that would have been an interesting storyline because they both deal with serums. What would it have been like to get those two together and use some sort of... Um, drug in the water or something like that rather than have this supernatural so I, I think we're kind of looking at two different demon blackfires in my opinion the other question I have is a small one but we see Julia Pennyworth uh, you know confront Ugh. Alfred about his choice of this, you know what he's doing for the fifth time and uh, I mean it seems like we're just seeing a continuation of the same scene over and over yeah. again um, but now it appears that Alfred, assumingly, is going to reveal to Julia what he actually does because they show that he's walking to the grandfather clock mm -hmm. and the last panel makes it seem as if he's pushing it to the side. So do you believe that this is what's happening and is this, you know, basically without romantic reasons, do you believe this is basically Batman 1989 all over again? I don't know what's going on. I mean... I, I I just don't. It's it, 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 and like Stella said, like this is we just keep doing the same thing with these two characters. You know, I don't know. I don't think I don't. I don't. I'm not trying to say anything bad, so I'll just let it go. <laughs> um, I don't think he's going to do it. I mean, yeah, you see his hand on it, but I think he needs to have a better strength of character than to just break down and say, "This is you know what I'm doing right now." I think he's got to convince her of 
of his mission without fully divulging that he's working for Batman to prove that he still has that strong character that he had, you know, when she was younger. And until she start, stops complaining and saying the same thing over and over again, she doesn't deserve to know. And I think it'd be a weak character point if he were to all of a sudden reveal because it's a bigger decision than just him like there's got to be other people involved in that process so i i think that's a it's a bit of a tease and um i don't think that is the direction it's going to go and i don't think it should be the direction that it goes i, I bet you when this is all said and done that bruce is the if, if she and she's going to find that at some point i mean, i, I agree with you there i just don't think it should happen this way yeah no this way would be catastrophically silly for alfred to do it yeah no. yeah i would agree um I feel like, honestly, at this point, even based off of the way that Dustin Wen has been drawing her, I feel as if that this character is that character who is standing in front of the back computer in issue or Batman number 28. I feel like she's going to be that character. And in some ways, I was trying to think, okay, well, wouldn't it have made more sense if it was Harper Rose since she's so great at this technology, but we know that she's going to become Bluebird mm-hmm. because it, that was shown in the same issue. So Julia Pennyworth, on the other hand, being the character who's in the Batcave, basically being Penny 2, when you think about it, uh, it's entirely possible. I like it, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think that it is going to be revealed, and she is that character who is in the Batcave, you know, behind the scenes working with Batman, but... I don't know how we're going to get to that. I really hope that Alfred's not going to, you know, just lead her down there and then has to deal with Bruce being pissed that he did that. Because it, I mean, there's plenty of times where we've seen Alfred make some poor choices, but just to, you know, shut his daughter up because she is basically going on and on over a, a slew of issues talking about the fact that I can't believe you're working with this guy and you're a servant and that's all you are and blah, 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 blah. And the thing is, like, just to make her shut up, he does this, it would be, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. So I'll leave it at that. All right, so Batman number 17, I'll give this one three and a half out of five batterings. Two and a half out of five? How come we haven't mentioned the fact that Harper Row looks like Grifter in all of the Blue the, Grifter? I know, right? Doesn't why did they do that? It's so very bizarre. Three and a half. Alright, and over on the website, Corbin gave it four out of five. So that's gonna give Batman Eternal number 17, a total of three and a half out of five bed ranks. That is all of our books. Uh, let's go over some of the other bat books that we have reviewed over on the website. Teen Titans number one. Corbin gave two and a half out of five bad ranks. Uh, Harley Quinn invades Comic-Con International San Diego, number one. Corbin gave five out of five bad ranks. Batwoman, number 33, got three out of five bad ranks. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 33, got three out of five bad ranks. The New 52 Futures End, number 11, got three out of five bad ranks. Catwoman, number 33, got two and a half out of five bad ranks. Secret Origins, number four, which, as I mentioned earlier, deals with the origins of Harley Quinn and Damian Wayne Robin, uh, got three out of five bad ranks. The New 52 Futures End, number 12, got three out of five bad ranks. Harley Quinn, number eight, got three and a half out of five bad ranks. And Justice League number 32 received three and a half out of five bed ranks. So if you are interested in learning more about any of those titles, be sure to check out the website as all of those reviews are in detail as well as uh, recaps of the events of what's actually occurring in some of the books if you want to keep up with those. 
In addition to that, uh, that is everything for this episode. Be sure to check out the website. As you're listening to this, I am happy to announce that uh, there is a brand new version of the website that has launched. And as you're listening to this, uh, you can definitely go check out check out all of the new stuff we have on the website. We also have, as I also mentioned earlier, Batgirl Oracle and the Batman Universe interviews posted up in a interview recap of all of the different interviews that we performed at San Diego, so be sure to check that out. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts that we have to offer, including the commentaries, Bat Fans, Taking Flight, Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake. Be sure to check out all of those, as well as everything that we have to offer. Be sure to check out the website for all the latest movies, movie, TV, merchandise, video game, and, of course, the comic news as well. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, as well as join our Facebook group to chat with other Bat fans. Leave us reviews on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. And as always, we are still looking for staff. If you go check out the new website and say, hey, you know what? This website design looks awesome. Well, that's thanks to Ed. And that is the, that is one of the reasons that one of the things that we've been looking to do for some time, Ed put that together and, um, it is done now, but that doesn't mean that the work for the site is done. So we are looking for people. If you come over to the website, check it out and say, this is awesome. Be sure to click on the advertisement at the very bottom of the page that says join TVU staff. Mm -hmm. And we would like you to be working with us on the Batman universe. We have all kinds of stuff that need, we need help with. Obviously Corbin has stepped up and has been reviewing a ton of the books. Actually a good majority of all of the books that have Batman in them. There's still digital books that could be reviewed on a weekly basis. There's still other releases as well. There's other books that aren't new 52 within the new 52 continuity that need to be reviewed as, but at the same point, we also need a number of people to cover a, a big chunk of the news. We're specifically looking for people to cover merchandise news, movie news, TV news, and video game news. So if you're interested in any of those areas and can dedicate, click on that ad and you'll find out exactly what to do to get involved with working with the Batman universe. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Ed. And this is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe comic podcast. We'll see you guys in two weeks.